Hello. What should every counselor know about inclusionary zoning, and what does a successful package include to make it work? I'm here today with Scott Figginshow, CEO of Community Housing Aotearoa. Scott has 25 years of experience in the community housing sector. He has experience in roles with nonprofits, government, and the private sector. Scott is experienced in policy development, including inclusionary zoning and shared ownership. Further, he has experience in combining nonprofit and market housing developments and working on affordable housing issues with private developers. He has advanced degrees in planning and housing finance and is passionate about affordable and social housing as part of a holistic approach to mixed income and mixed tenure community development. Scott can be reached at director at communityhousing.org.nz. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Hey, so what historically do New Zealanders think about what affordable housing is and what a previous approaches um, have there been to this issue? Well, if we look back um, before the 1990s, uh, New Zealand was generating nearly two-thirds of all new housing stock was genuinely affordable to uh, folks uh, working in our economy. And uh, I think it's uh, people didn't used to have a problem with housing affordability in New Zealand because we had a whole range of tools that were delivering direct investment to make sure that we were generating a, a lot of affordable housing. You know, we've got whole suburbs uh, that were people's uh, first homes. And I think it's looking back in those days with that level of investment, uh, we need to find those new tools today. Okay, that makes sense because times are changing. We need new tools. So what is inclusionary zoning as one of those tools? What's the definition of this? Well, if we look at it, it's kind of a broad topic. It's really looking at um, our planning system and looking at the concept of planning gain um, or value uplift. Uh, you know, every time that a council approves a new development, especially one going from greenfields into some type of residential or urban zoning, um, that represents a tremendous increase in what that land value uh, is. And uh, we've always thought that it's entirely appropriate for councils by the using uh, their, their consent approval pen to ensure that we're getting some of that value used for community purposes. So in that sense, inclusion rezoning means that we're including affordable housing in those new developments as they go forward. Got it. So why hasn't it been used in the past? Is it just simply because other tools have worked or we're finding pressures that we hadn't seen before? Well, a lot of the work that Case Smith has done with the Building Better Homes, Towns and Cities National Science Challenges shows that historically New Zealand used um, its finance tools. So um, state housing, uh, the state housing program, um, the state advances loans that enabled people to buy their first home. So we used a lot of those tools and we didn't really use our planning system to enable affordable housing. Um, but today things are different. Uh, and uh, we've got uh, now over 10 years of track record in the Queenstown Lakes District, which has used a set of inclusion rezoning approaches um, through the RMA and in their district plan. Uh, and so I think today we'll talk a bit about those and, uh, and really think about whether those can apply uh, and be successful for other councils. Okay, so that, that seems to make a lot of sense. One thing that should be understood for somebody listening to this podcast, there's a little bit of a difference between social housing and affordable housing. And so in your mind, what is affordable housing? 
So it really is around that the, the household, the family, that they're not spending more than roughly a third of their income in their rent or in their mortgage uh, uh, repayments. So that's really what we find works successfully. That's an international benchmark. Um, and it's really true for people that are earning at the median household income and lower. Got it. Got it. So this is obviously quite different from the type of housing that might be provided by the state for those that meet certain qualifications or requirements. This is really can be both for profit um, developed or it can be um, developed by a nonprofit organization. The medium doesn't really matter as long as it meets the income requirements that the sector needs or the, the population needs. That's absolutely right, Tom. We think one of the most important things that council should do is really understand what is the housing need or the housing demand in their community. And we suggest that folks do that by understanding that kind of by segment across a housing affordability continuum. So how many folks um, homeless? We need to understand that. We need to understand the uh, folks that have a range of high needs who would be eligible for social housing. We then know we've got a massive group, usually in, in communities, we call the missing middle. So these are folks that are working, but can't afford to either rent or own uh, a home given what house prices are. Uh, and so what are the, how many folks are in that circumstance? And whether they are key workers, um, are they um, seasonal workers? What is the, what's that makeup look like? So what's the incentive to provide affordable housing in the first place? I mean, obviously, there's a number of players in this area. You have councils, you have buyers, you have builders. What's the real incentive? What, what gets people building this type of housing? Well, councils are the place where local needs come up to the fore. And so we hear from many councils around the country that housing is increasingly a really big topic that their community is asking them to tackle. So I think when we look at inclusionary zoning, look, this is just one of the tools in the toolkit, but we find it's a really fundamental one because it actually is a way to connect what that need looks like into what the uh, what council is being asked to approve by way of zoning um, for new developments or rezoning existing land. Okay. Got it. So I'm understanding that there is a market, there are possible players within this market that need to come up to speed on a new tool. If this tool were to be successfully implemented across the country, what could New Zealand look like in the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, that's a great question because I think one of the other aspects that an inclusionary approach lets you do is really achieve a mixed income, mixed tenure type of development. So as we're building new suburbs, uh, do we want all of those suburbs to be large uh, four and five bedroom houses on big sections or do you want to have some smaller units or perhaps some units that are um, fully accessible so uh, an older uh, couple could actually downsize from a big house into smaller ones. Um, have we thought about providing that range of options when we're designing our communities and then making sure, making it explicit, that some of those units are going to be genuinely affordable to folks that are earning um, below the median income and who may be key workers in our communities. So what you're saying is, is that in the next 10 to 20 years, what we'll have is a greater number of strata within in most of our communities if we can implement, successfully implement, inclusionary zoning, meaning that if we can create a new tool or tools, we can ensure that there are a myriad of types of incomes and people within communities to fill various needs that every community needs. 
That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. Correct. So let's talk about kind of how that works in practice. Yeah. One of the things that inclusionary zoning does is say, great, there's a new area that the, um, a private landowner is coming to council seeking zoning. Um, and in, uh, the council then can say, well, gosh, we've got a set of objectives and policies. Uh, we want to encourage um, affordable housing to be developed. So what if 5% or 10% of the land area of that new development became available explicitly for uh, affordable housing? Um, so how do we deliver that then? Um, the, the technique that's been used successfully so far is where that um, zoning gets approved and a, um, a stakeholder deed or a development deed that's been signed between the developer and the council that specifies a whole range of things. It might be contributions, open space, specific roadings, um, how the three waters are handled, and also affordable housing. So that might specify that, say, 5 or 10% of the sections that get approved um, come through council and are delivered through a local not-for-profit community housing trust. That's a great solution when a council itself doesn't want to get into the, um, the, the business of developing housing and being responsible for operating housing stock. So what that does is that land value um, that has come across um, is held in perpetuity by that trust. Um, and so we can, every developer can know, ah, that's where it's going. Um, I've made a contribution. Um, everybody else is going to be asked to make the same kind of contribution that I've been asked to make. And we know that it's going to be um, held with good stewardship on behalf of the community for a long period of time. Right. So it's not just going to go away once the homes are built, once they're occupied, that is eaten up, and now you have to go find some new. It stays and retains within the infrastructure of the community. Because really, inclusionary zoning is a tool, and the outputs of that is infrastructure for the community to meet public need. Correct. Correct. Okay. I'm starting to think of it, Tom, maybe we should think of it as a tool shed. Because there's a whole package of things in there. It's both the making available the uh, the uh, land that can come across to again to be held and operated by a not-for-profit housing trust. What that trust does is then um, gets homes built that are consistent with the typology and density that the rest of the development is is going to, and then either makes them available as an affordable rental or as one of the um, types of either rent to buy or shared ownership where the trust is holding on to a share, the, basically the land share in that unit. So these are tried and tested. Um, they work with New Zealand banks. Um, the, the legal agreements are well established and well understood. There's actually now over 10 years of track record. And in some cases on rent to buy programs, there's over 30 years of track record around these programs currently operating in New Zealand. 30 years of track record for rent-to-buy. Correct. Habitat for Humanity has been operating a rent-to-buy program for over 30 years now. Um, organizations like Housing Foundation, um, based in Auckland, also has done quite a bit of work in the Christchurch area, Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust, Dwell in the Wellington region. So we've got a long track record now. We even have some EWI providers coming into the space um, uh, in the Bay of Plenty uh, and in other aspects. So there's lots of track record that's being built, and again, broadly around a set of quite common principles. Okay, that's really interesting. So the question for me then, okay, what are the barriers? Because if it were that simple, it would have been picked up by now, and there must be something out there that says, listen, we, we need to like not allow some of these things to happen for various reasons that are occurring in the community. Well, I think, I think it's really helpful when we can all get our heads around understanding what is the value of a given piece of land before we change its zoning. Once we understand that value, and then we look at what the, what the landowner is requesting from council through approval of a zoning process, and we look at what that future value will be. 
Now that future value, that is really um, the um, uplift that is occurring between a, a, the pre-development value and the post-development value. Now, the, what inclusion reasoning does is lets us capture some of that value for, uh, for a range of community needs. Um, open space is one of those needs, and we don't, we don't seem to have any trouble doing it for open space. We don't seem to have trouble doing it for reading requirements. We don't have a trouble doing it for parking. So all we're doing is applying that same capture approach to affordable housing. I think how we retain it is where most people have the most concern. So the way that we can retain that is knowing that it's going to be used for affordable housing, not only for current um, residents, um, but also for the, the generations that follow. And that's really, I think, where the package of combining an inclusionary zoning approach with these um, retention tools, usually using a registered not-for-profit community housing provider, can be a great combination. Got it. So there, there are a number of tools that you're talking about that overcome some of these barriers. And in your experience, it'd be great to bring up the subject of Queenstown because you have a tremendous amount of experience there. And can you highlight the, um, some of the outcomes that are resulting from inclusionary housing? Sure. So that, that program is now 10 years on, and it's actually been a really, uh, a really successful uh, solution that required a lot of partnership by the council, by its community in, in adopting a long-term housing strategy. Um, with um, many developers in the development sector who realized that they wanted to make a positive contribution. And, and what they wanted was council to put in place a level playing field of consistent rules that applied to everybody that was coming forward. And council has done that. But they also wanted to have the delivery, again, through a registered not-for-profit community housing trust. So what this has m meant in practice is that um, uh, nearly $18 million of value uplift has come through this process and is sitting on the balance sheet of the local community housing trust. That's been able to leverage another $5 million of crown grants. And council has had to contribute really just around $1.5 million in order to kind of make that whole package come together. So it's a really cost-effective ways for councils to leverage that local land value that's already there and central government contribution. You picked up on something right away that I'm, I'm obviously want to jump from, and that's the fact that there are there was $18 million worth of capture from value uplift, and that provided the seed by which other contributions could be added to. Would you say that's a real catalyst for councils to really consider when they're going through this? Because it really is about initiative. It is really about, in some cases, getting the ball rolling so that people see the vision and there's a resource behind it. So you're absolutely right, Tom. It's absolutely a catalyst, but it's also we built a machine as opposed to just doing a one-off. So every new development that's coming through, when they're signing up um, to a stakeholder um, deed or some kind of a development agreement with council, um, those create a future pipeline. So this isn't just a one-off. This is actually a, a pipeline that as developments come forward, then every time that more, more housing gets built, some portion of that is going to be available as affordable. So that's what has, I think, troubled many other initiatives, is that it happens for the duration of the initiative, but then it doesn't continue. Right. This is actually a kind of a machine, an ongoing practice that's now well embedded. Um, and is it doing everything that the district needs? No, it's not. But is it one of those foundational policies, foundational tools that's in place that is going to be generating year over year? Yes, it is. So you've brought up something that's really critical, and I think 
that any counselor or any staff member needs to really get their head around when they, they start looking at these outcomes that are, are critical for infrastructure, the overall infrastructure of the community. That's that they, they're building off of a long-term plan. Correct. And they're building off of a housing strategy oftentimes as part of that long-term plan or ancillary to that long-term plan. And it's a machinery of local government that actually facilitates and moves through the process of delivering outcomes. And in those outcomes, um, there are some things Things I think that every counselor, every staff member should be thinking about when they when they go through this. And there's some critical tools or resources. And in your mind, what are those those I guess actions um, to address this issue? What are those those resources that they should be considering? I think there's really three main ones. The first one is you've got to do a local housing needs assessment, and you really need to understand who it is that you're trying to serve, how much those households can afford, and then design your programs around meeting those needs quite directly. That flows into the second piece, was having a really robust housing strategy that has a long enough um, uh, period and a long enough vision to survive the three-year council election cycle. So it's got to be able to put in place uh, a, a range of activities that council partners um, and uh, and coordinates uh, for you know 10, 15, 20-year time periods, and then the third period is pieces to decide what's the delivery approach that you want to use. Does council itself want to be an owner operator of the housing? Does it instead prefer to use again for profit registered community housing provider and that infrastructure? Uh, those I think are some quite um, fundamental decisions that. Uh, councils can consider and make early on that then starts building that machine that's going to be fit for purpose for them. Got it. So what, in recapping some of that, what I hear is a real strategic, solid vision, a matrix of players and participants in that process, and who owns the delivery of it yep. um, and the management of that as that goes along. Okay, well, that's really interesting to note. I think that a lot of people struggle with this issue because the term inclusionary zoning, for example, can be a little bit daunting to get their head around some of these things. Are there resources that you could also recommend that that would be a good starting point for somebody just to getting their head around having a real thoughtful conversation with their staff, with the public on it? Sure. So, so Tom, we've recently published a, a couple of articles, one of which was um, by Julie Scott, who's the um, director of the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust on how that program has worked there. There's another piece we uh, published in uh, the Property Law magazine, which really talked about these concepts of um, value uplift, capture, retention, and recycling. Uh, so those are a couple things. I think there's many more that folks uh, will be able to find either on the Community Housing Aotearoa website or on the Local Government New Zealand website. Okay, and obviously you're available for conversation. Happy topic. to do that. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much, Scott, for coming in, um, giving us a kind of a summary and overview of where a resource for councils can be found to help meet the growing demand for affordable housing in New Zealand. Happy to do it, Tom. Thanks. Thanks.